So let's begin our topic tonight with prayer. Oh, loving Father, I thank you so much for this evening and the opportunity for us all to come together again. And Lord, we are praying that you would give us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. But more than that, Lord, we are praying that you would help us to follow the truth, to apply it to our lives. As James said, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And so, Lord, we don't want to be deceived, and we want to understand the truth, and we want to follow the truth and live the truth, and we can't do that on our own. As we already talked about, we know the things we ought to do, but we don't do them because of our sinful nature. So we need you. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the power of heaven here. And so we pray you'd pour out your spirit on us, give us wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and help us to do your will. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, last night we began to look at this topic of the Antichrist, and tonight we're going to talk some more about that. Now, you'll remember that last night that we looked at seven clues to tell us who the Antichrist was. And you'll remember that we saw that that little horn in Daniel chapter 7, that it came up out of the fourth beast, which was identified as Rome. And so we saw that the Antichrist has to proceed from Rome. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of different views in the world. I told you uh, that there are some people that say Bill Gates is the Antichrist, right? Or, or Barack Obama, or there's a lot of different theories. But when we look at that prophecy and we see that little horn coming up out of that fourth beast, that means it has to come out of Rome. We also saw that that Antichrist rises to power shortly after 476 A.D. And that's because the ten horns, which represent the ten divisions of Rome or the ten divisions of Europe today, uh, were already in place when the little horn came up. And we looked at history and we saw that it was shortly after 476 A.D. that Antichrist had to come up because that final uh, one of those uh, countries that was plucked out, the final one was shortly after that time period. So it has to be that that gives us more information than any of the other clues that we have because it, it gives us the timing of the Antichrist coming on the scene and it also gives us the place. And those are very important things. And then we also saw that the Antichrist is a strong political leader. And we looked at that and we saw that he was given authority over every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And if that's the case, then it has to be a strong political power. And I gave you the example of the United States. We are a strong political power and we have uh, a lot to say about other tribes, tongues, nations, and people, right? And so this also is a very strong political power. We also saw that this Antichrist is a blaspheming power. And that's because we looked at those two definitions of blasphemy according to the Bible. The first was claiming to be able to forgive sins. And the second one was claiming to have 
the authority of God or to have the prerogatives of God. And we saw that this was in fact a blaspheming power. And then we looked at the uh, fact that this was not just a political power, but this was also a religious power. And we looked there at Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, and we saw that it says that this horn came up among the ten, but he was different than the others. And what made him different is that the, uh, that the first ten were all just political powers, but now this one has both political and religious power. And we also saw that the reason that it was a religious power is because we saw that he was receiving worship. It said that the whole world would wonder after the beast. And it said that the whole world would worship the beast. And then we saw that this is a persecuting power. And we went through and we looked at that verse that said that he was able or given authority to make war with the saints. And then we saw another verse that said that he persecuted the saints, which is the same thing. And so if you have the ability to persecute, that makes you a persecuting power. And the thing that we need to realize too is if God is God, then He's in charge, right? And if God's in charge and this power is able to persecute God's people, then God has allowed it. God is not going to take away anyone's free will, but God can still work with that. God can still take that and turn it into something good, right? And then we saw that this power reigns for 1,260 years. But more than that, we looked at three different time prophecies. We looked at time, times, and a half a time. We looked at 1,260 days. And then we looked at 42 months. And what do you think about that? Wasn't that cool how we went to Genesis and we saw how the Bible shows that, that there's 360 days in a year? And all three of those time frames were the exact same period of time, 1,260 days. But then we saw that a day equals a year in prophecy. And we, we talked about Ezekiel chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 14 where it gave that example of a day for a year principle. We also talked a little bit about uh, Daniel chapter 9 and the 70-week prophecy, which we haven't gotten into yet, but we're going to. It's a fascinating prophecy, but it fits so perfectly for a day for a year that if you have 70 weeks times seven days in a week, that's 490 days, but if it's a day for a year, then that's 490 years, and when we go and look at that, you're going to see how that fits perfectly in that prophecy, and that really sets the tone for all of the other time prophecies, and God is consistent in all of them. So that kind of catches us up to where we were last night. And we already talked about who this power is. And we said that this could be none other than the Roman Catholic Church, and more specifically, the, the institution of the papacy. And we went through and we saw that we were not only the ones that saw this, but it was actually discovered back in the 15 and 1600s by the reformers. And that, you know, that's what really poured fuel on that watershed moment. Because 
Martin Luther would have never had the courage to take a stand against the Pope until he saw from Scripture that he was, in fact, Antichrist. And that's what gave him the courage. At that point, then, all of a sudden, the Reformation just took off. And so, I'd like you to uh, notice all of these things. And I would just say now, tonight, let's go back and let's look at these things again. And let's see from the documents from the Catholic Church if what we're saying is accurate. So, clue number one was that the papacy would proceed from Rome. And the question is, did it in fact? I'd like you to know, notice what a professor of history at the University of Rome says. To the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. And so what we're seeing here is that the Caesars had the political power. Remember when we were talking about the image of chapter 2 and I was talking about how Rome was represented by the legs of iron and there were two and I said that part of that was like a political power and the other was religious. What we're seeing here is pagan Rome and then we're seeing Christian Rome. And so what we're seeing here is that the Caesar was representing pagan Rome And then the papacy representing the Christian Rome. And what we see here is the succession is that it goes from from pagan Rome straight to religious Rome. And he also goes on to say, when Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. Constantine was the last emperor of Rome. History shows that. We don't have to guess on that. But when he left, he gave his power and authority directly to the pontiff. And who's the pontiff? The Pope. That's right. And so uh, what this professor at the University of Rome itself is saying is that when the Caesars left, the seat of power was immediately given to the papacy. And that comes directly from Rome itself. The second question is, did the papacy rise to power uh, after 476 A.D.? Notice what Daniel said, chapter 7, verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And you'll remember that we talked about those ten divisions of Rome And that was what are known today as the Germans, the Swiss, the French, the Italians, the English, the Portuguese, and the Spanish. And then we talked about those three that were plucked out by the roots, and that was the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals, and they are extinct today. And notice what this says from a book called History of the Christian Church, volume 3, page 327. It says the papacy's power became supreme in Christendom in 538 A.D. due to the letter of the Roman emperor Justinian known as Justinian's decree, which set up and acknowledged the bishop of Rome as the head of all churches, and it gave the papacy political power as well as ecclesiastical power. 
And so once again, we're seeing from the history of the church, this book is telling us exactly when the papacy came into power. Shortly after 476 A.D. would be 538 A.D. is when that actually happened. That book goes on to say, this letter became part of Justinian's code, the fundamental law of the empire, and that year Pope Vigilius ascended the throne under the military protection of Belisarius. And so here is the religious leader being crowned as king, and he has the protection of the military to make sure that his rule is followed. Notice what Revelation 13 verse 2 says. It says, And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, who's the dragon? Satan or the devil? And we saw that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, didn't we? But I want you to remember something very important. Satan never works out in the open. He always works through deception and he always works through human powers. Right? So, let me ask you a question then. Uh, Who was it that sought to kill Jesus when He was born? It was Herod who was a part of what nation? Rome. So here we see that even though the dragon is Satan, Satan is working through human instrumentalities. And so here we see that the dragon, it could also be called pagan Rome. Right? Because the devil is working through those instrumentalities. And that's how he always works. And so then what we're seeing is that the dragon who is... Satan, but also pagan Rome, but it's pagan Rome who gives their authority to papal Rome, right? Because when the Caesars stepped down, they immediately gave their seat, their authority to the papacy. You with me? Does that make sense? And so that's how we see how the devil works. The the dragon could be referred to as Satan or pagan Rome. And then pagan Rome gave their power to papal Rome. All right. Here's a picture of the Caesar giving the crown to the Pope. And here is he is accepting that civil authority. Number three, is the papacy a strong political power? I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but on January 10th, 1984, the White House and the Holy See... That's the Vatican, right? The White House and the Vatican announced the establishment of diplomatic relations to the Vatican. And uh, the United States appointed William Wilson to be an ambassador to the Vatican. Now this is really something important. Because, let me ask you a question. Did the United States assign an ambassador to the Baptist church? How about the Presbyterians? The Methodists? There's a reason for that. Because they don't have political power. But the papacy does. So, 
there we see that it does in fact have uh, political power. Time magazine wrote this years ago about the, what they called the Holy Alliance. And notice what it says. One of his earliest goals as president, Reagan says, was to recognize the Vatican as a state and make them an ally. And the presidents ever since then have been seeking the favor of Rome. Clue number four. Is the papacy a blaspheming power? This is from Dignities and Duties of the Priest. This is a Catholic document. And notice what it says on volume 12, page 2. God Himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of His priests and either not to pardon or to pardon. According as they refuse or give absolution, the sentence of the priest proceeds and God subscribes to it. In other words, what they're saying is God is at the mercy of the priests. That's their own words, brothers and sisters. That is their understanding. Notice from the encyclical letters of Pope Leo XIII, page 304, notice what he said. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Was that one of the biblical definitions of blasphemy? Claiming to have the authority of God? Notice what the Catholic National said in July of 1895. This was Pope Pius X saying this. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but He is Jesus Christ Himself hidden under the veil of flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Christ who speaks. By the way, the Bible is very clear that it is the Holy Spirit who is the representative of Christ on earth, not the Pope. Friends, that's blasphemy. And then, of course, there was the Council of Trent. And we talked about that a little bit last night, didn't we? That was a council that was created for the specific reason of coming up with some theology to counter the theology of the Bible that says that the papacy is, in fact, Antichrist. That was the whole purpose of setting up that council. But there was something else that they covered in that Council of Trent. And that is the issue of the tradition of the church or the Bible. And notice what they came up with. This is from Canon and Tradition. This is the document that they created as a result of this council. And it says, finally, at the last opening on the 18th of January, 1562, all hesitation was set aside. The Archbishop of Reggio made a speech in which he openly declared that tradition stood above Scripture. Notice what Catholic belief says on page 33. Like two sacred rivers flowing from paradise, the Bible and divine tradition contain the Word of God. Though these two divine streams are of equal sacredness, still of the two, tradition is to us more clear and safe. Friends, that's blasphemy. That's saying that the things that have been handed down through the church are more sacred and more important than the Word of God. Next one. Is the papacy a universal religious power? Well, this doesn't mean a whole lot, but at Pope John Paul's funeral, 
There were five kings, four queens, at least 70 presidents and prime ministers. More than a hundred nations were represented. Uh, Prince Charles uh, postponed his wedding to attend the funeral. There were an estimated four million people present in Vatican City and two billion people watching on television. Friends, that's universal. By the way, Catholic means universal. Number six, has the papacy persecuted? Notice what the Western Watchman, this is a Catholic document, notice what it says. The church has persecuted. Only a tyro or only a beginner in church history will deny that. This is the church's own writing, Public Ecclesiastical Law, Volume 2, page 142. The church may by divine right confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their persons, and condemn them to the flames. Notice what the historian Justinian said. He's talking about the Pope. He says he is the head of the church, the true and effectual corrector of heretics. Notice what the Catholic dictionary describes heresy as. Deciding for oneself what one shall believe and practice. Friends, I don't call that heresy. I call that freedom of choice. Here's the issue. When the church and state are united, that's when problems arise. You realize that the reason that we have freedom in America to worship is because there were people that came here who were trying to escape persecution from Europe. And they were under immense persecution and they were wanting to follow their own beliefs. And when the church has control of the state, the church will legislate its beliefs And if you don't agree with their beliefs, then guess what? You're a heretic. It naturally happens when the church and state are united. And so, that is why this country was built on a separation of church and state. That's not unchristian. That's Christian. And we must give Muslims and Buddhists, and atheists, and anyone else the right to believe whatever they want to. Because if we ever hope to give them an understanding of the love of Jesus Christ and bring them to the truth, we have to allow them to believe whatever they want to believe. That's the only way that we will ever be able to bring them to the truth. You can't force anyone to believe what you want them to. It never works. Try that with your kids, right? My wife and I came to the Lord when our kids were teenagers, and all my kids had a drug problem. We drug them to church every week, and they hated it, right? Because they didn't have the relationship with the Lord that we had. You can't force someone to love God. Here's a picture of John Huss being burned at the stake for heresy. Conservative estimates are that 50 million people died 
during that 1,260 years of papal power. Number seven, did the papacy reign for 1,260 years? The Ostrogoths were the last of the Arian kingdoms to oppose the Roman church and they were overthrown in the year 538 A.D. And so that would be the beginning of that 1,260 years. So if you go from 538 and you add 1,260 years, what do you get? 1798. And so if it ended power in 1798, then something significant must have happened, right? History shows us. This is from Church History, page 24. The murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the Eternal City, that's Vatican City, and putting an end to the papal temporal power. And so at this point now, it's still a church, there's still a religious power, but they're no longer a political power. The temporal power, the civil power, was taken away. Here is a picture of Berthier, Napoleon's general, coming in and taking the Pope captive. Notice what church history says on page 24. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile to Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last Pope, they declared, had resigned. Notice what it says in the modern papacy. Berthier entered into Rome on the 10th of February, 1798, and proclaimed it a republic. This is a Catholic document telling us that. 1,260 years. So, did the papacy proceed from Rome? Yes. Did the papacy arise shortly after 476 A.D.? Yes. Were they a strong political power? Yes. Were they a blaspheming power? Yes. A universal religious power? Yes. A persecuting power? Yes. Did they reign for 1,260 years? Yes. Well, here's clue number eight. He has this mysterious number, 666. I'd like you to notice something right out of our Sunday visitor. This is a Catholic document. It says the title of the Pope of Rome is Vicarius Philidei. This is inscribed on his mitre. And here's a picture of Pope John Paul, and that mitre is the hat. And notice that inscribed on there is Vicarius Philidei, which means vicar of the Son of God or representative of the Son of God. But remember what I said. The Bible says that it is the Holy Spirit that is the representative Son of God, not the Pope. But notice what that continues to say in the Sunday Visitor. And if you take the letters of his title, which represent Latin numerals, and you add them together, they come up to 666. The Catholics themselves tell you that they have the number of the beast. And here is the actual document, and here is what it is. If you take those uh, Roman letters, and some of them have value, and some of them don't, and you add them up, and that's kind of hard to see, so I just put it on another slide here. But if you take the name and the numbers, and you add them all up, guess what? It comes up to 666. Now, if this was the only reason that we had to believe that the papacy was the Antichrist, 
then I might say, well, that's a little flimsy. But we have a multitude of identifying marks of the Antichrist. Friends, there should be no question in our minds. Number nine, he receives a fatal wound by the sword. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads, this is the Antichrist, as if it had been mortally wounded. Now, the papacy was primarily wounded by the Reformation. But notice that it said in that text that it would be wounded by the sword. And remember that when the Reformation started, that's exactly when the printing press was invented. And now the the Bible is being mass-produced and being sent out into the public and people are reading the Bible for themselves. And what is the Word of God called in Scripture? A sword, right? So here we see that I saw in one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And it was wounded by the Reformation. It was wounded by the Word of God. Notice what John Wycliffe said. He was one of the Reformers. The Pope is Antichrist here on earth. Notice what Martin Luther said. Oh, how much pain it has caused me though I had the Scriptures on my side that I should dare to make a stand alone against the Pope and hold him forth as Antichrist. Notice what John Calvin, another one of the Reformers, said. Daniel and Paul had predicted that the Antichrist would sit in the temple of God, the head of that cursed and abominable kingdom in the Western church. We affirm to be the Pope. You add to that list William Tyndall, Ulrich Zwingli, Ridley, Latimer, Sir Isaac Newton, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John Knox, Matthew Henry, Albert Barnes, John Fox, John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, and so many others. And what was their complaint? Were they prejudiced against the church? No, they were all part of the church. They loved their church. They wanted to see their church reformed. They didn't want to leave it. They absolutely loved it. And I can tell you, that there are probably going to be a lot of Roman Catholics in the kingdom of God. Simply because there's more of them than any other. But remember, we're not talking about individuals. We're talking about a corrupt system. Now, the Bible says that we are judged according to what we know, not what we don't know, right? In other words, those that are living up to all the light that they have, I believe they will be in the kingdom of God. But here's the thing, friends. Now that you've received more light, you're going to be held accountable for that. Right? Those who don't know what you don't know won't be as held accountable because they don't know. But now that you know, God is going to hold you accountable for that. But, but this power is one that Paul speaks about in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, don't let anyone bring you another gospel. Because this man-made gospel is one that doesn't save. This is a gospel that is based on a system of works 
and paying for your salvation. It is the Gospel that's not based on a close relationship with Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith. And that's what the Reformers were fighting for. They were fighting for you. They were fighting for me. This this Bible is a blood-bought book. They purchased this book through their lives. And today I wonder sometimes at some Protestants who were totally going away from what the Reformers were fighting for. They were fighting for the Word of God. But the Bible says that His wound would be healed and all the world follows Him. Notice what it says in Revelation 13, verse 3. And His deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. I'd like you to look at this article from the San Francisco Chronicle in 1929 and notice what it says. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. In affixing the autographs to the memorable document, Healing the Wound, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. You understand that in 1798 that the the papacy lost political power. And over the next few years, there was the revolution in France, um, but then the papacy suffered a setback in 1870. But ultimately, in 1929, there was a treaty between Vatican City and Italy where Mussolini gave the Pope political control over Vatican City. And so the wound was healed. Now, he didn't have political power over the whole world like he had before, but the wound was beginning to be healed. And and you can go and you can look at the news over the last 15 years and you will see how that wound is being healed. In fact, I saw something not too long ago where the, the Lutheran church went, out, went right out saying that there was no difference in the Lutheran church's understanding of justification by faith and that of the Catholic church. Now, again, I'm not pointing to individual Roman Catholics, but I'll just tell you that their understanding of justification by faith is a lot different than Luther's. And Luther would be rolling over in his grave if he heard what they were doing. The wound, according to the Bible, Bible prophecy, would be healed at the end. And this power would once again have influence. And we're going to study about that later and just see how kind of influence they have. But the real question that we have to ask ourselves is knowing everything that we've seen over last night and tonight, what is going to be your guide? Now, I understand that these things are hard to talk about. And I understand that there are those who will vehemently fight against that truth. But ultimately, I feel convicted by God to cling to the Bible over tradition. Are you with me? I feel that there is no hope in clinging to a human uh, system of ideas over Bible truth.
What is going to be your guide? Are you going to go by your feelings? Are you going to go by your preconceived notions and ideas? Are you going to go by the teachings of others? Or are you going to go by the Word of God? Who's your master going to be? Are you going to trust church leaders? Are you going to trust earthly views? Or are you going to study the Word of God for yourself and trust the Word of God? That's really the question that we need to answer, right? And to me, that question that's being brought throughout this seminar is really the question that we need to answer. And when we see the final test of the mark of the beast, when we study that mark of the beast part two, you're going to find out that ultimately what it's going to come down to is that very question. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship Christ or are you going to worship the beast? You know, I'm going to tell you, at the end of time, it is not going to be popular to stand for the truth. Because guess what? To not receive the mark of the beast is going to cost you. Because remember what the Bible says. They cannot buy or sell. It's going to cost you. And don't think that knowing that the papacy is the Antichrist is going to be a popular truth. It's not. It's going to be unpopular. I want to close tonight by telling you a story of a black slave who was being sold on the auction block. He was a very big, strong powerful young man and the bidders were waging their bids and the higher and higher that the price went the more this slave began vehemently screaming at the crowd you're wasting your money i will never work for you i am not going to be anyone's servant but the bidding continued And the more he screamed, the higher the price went. But finally, the gavel fell. And he said, sold to the highest bidder. And the man who purchased the slave took him out to his cart and he shackled him to it. And for several miles down the road, as they were going back to the the owner's place, This slave is continuously screaming at him. I told you, I will never work for you. And then when they got home, the master went and walked back to the back of the cart. He took the key and he unshackled the man. He said, Mister, I told you, I will never work for you again. And the owner said, I purchased you to set you free. And he turned around and he walked away. And the slave said, wait a minute, you you just said that I'm free? He said, yes, you're free to go. And he was so taken, he said, mister, I will work for you for the rest of my life. Friends, 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid the maximum price to set you free. So why would we allow men to put us back under slavery in the name of religion? 
Will you choose to give yourself to Christ today? Will you choose to follow the truth? Jesus said the truth will set you free. But it's only if we are willing to follow it. Is that you? Are you willing to follow the truth? If you are, let me see your hand. Praise God. Let's pray. Oh, loving Father, I thank You for all of these here. And Lord, You know every heart. You know every mind. You know that we want the truth. That's why we're here. And Father, I pray that for everyone who, as we leave here tonight, if anyone is struggling with this, Lord, I pray that You would just speak to their heart. And I pray that as they struggle with this, that You would strive with them. And Lord, You would help them to surrender their heart to the truth. And when they do, that Lord, You will give them a peace like they've never had before. That peace of God which passes all human understanding. I pray, Lord, that we would have it. In Jesus' name, Amen.